Hello and welcome to this episode of the CEU Press podcast series. Today we will be discussing one of the long-running series of the press, Studies in the History of Medicine, and um, the newest addition to the series. I'm very happy to welcome Marius Turda, the series editor, and Marke Brandon, the author of The Perils of Race Thinking. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. And before we dive into discussing the series and your new bookmark, could you introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, my name is Marius Turda and uh, I'm a professor of biomedicine at Oxford Brookes University. I teach the history of eugenics and history of racism with a particular focus on East Central Europe. And I'm Mark Brandon, the author of the book, The Perils of Race Thinking, a portrait of Alish Atlitschka. I'm a historian. I teach at the University of New York in Prague in the Department of uh, International Affairs and I teach American, European, and world history, among other things. And I've done it for over the last 20 years or so in, in Prague. So let's start with the series. So this is, I mean, the history of medicine is a very thriving field right now. And the CEU Press has been publishing in this series since 2011. So Marius, could you say a few words about how the series came about and what its main focus is? Yes, it all goes back to a conversation I had with two wonderful editors at CU Press, Ishvan Bart, who regrettably is not long, any longer amongst us, and Peter Inkei. So we, we had lunch one day, uh, I think it was about a couple of years after we published Blood and Homeland in 2007. So this would have been in 2009, 2010, I think. So uh, just reflecting what uh, what happened since the publication of Blood and Homeland and how important this was to attract a number of people from abroad to be interested in the history of medicine in East Central Europe, uh, broadly defined, but also to reevaluate the local contribution to uh, to the field. So I had this idea and uh, I spoke to the editors and they were like, well, if you, if you can think of certain topics that you think are going to be important in, in the next decade, for example, uh, then we'll be willing to uh, investigate a bit more and invest in the series. And then immediately, of course, I said, well, I, I think, and I, I proved, I proved, I suppose I proved to be quite right in this. I think I told them that eugenics is going to be a big field. And I think it's about time that people do know more about the local eugenic movements in East Central Europe. At the time, we didn't know anything about it. I also said that, regrettably, race is going to, uh, and racism is going to have a comeback. And I think the more we know about local traditions of race, would benefit nationally, regionally, but also globally. So, and uh, although you know, at the time, of course, we lived in quite euphoric moments. We we're talking about sort of the you know uh, early two thousands. Um, we didn't see the, the the dark clouds gathering across Europe, and there was no major crisis looming on the horizon. We could feel there is a potential for investigating certain dark chapters in the history of the region more. More, more seriously. I had lunch with these two gentlemen and they agreed that they're going to give it a go. I said, well, on the one hand, we should publish a local scholarship, whether it is available in English or not, we can translate it. And so we promote translation of local scholars and we did that. We translated from Romanian into English. So we published a good book by, by Berbulescu. But we also said we need to promote the interests of other scholars in the region. So we're going to attract people who have an interest in the region to write more about these topics. So then, of course, we had, you know, including the book we're publishing today by an American-born scholar, but actually completely immersed in the, in the history of the region. He could contribute to that. 
and also translations from, from other literatures and historiographies, which are very important but less known. So we translated from, from Italian into English. So we have a book uh, by Francesco Cassata. But I also told them we need to reach a, a balance between, you know, how we could promote globally knowledge about Eastern to Europe and how we can actually contribute to a global conversation rather than sort of put ourselves in a corner and create a niche field. So then I said, you know, whenever I will come across something interesting, I will suggest to the press and maybe we can publish that in the series. And this is how we ended up having a book on Japanese eugenics, for example, or the history of eugenics in Japan by Greg Sullivan, which I thought is extremely important. So we're trying to do, well, at the time, there was the intention, Andrea, we were trying to bring together a number of kind of, you know, um, disparate threads of various historiographic interests, but ultimately focusing on a field that has been very little explored or completely marginalized by sort of mainstream historians. No serious intellectual historian who studied the history of medicine or the history of eugenics or the history of race thinking. So I came from intellectual history and I was very, very much alone in this because I could not find any kind of you know counterpart in the region. Because as you know, in, Czech, in the Czech Republic or in Hungary or in Romania or in Poland, history of medicine is being done by physicians. And they have the monopoly on, on sort of the discussion about the importance of medical thinking to society. And I believed, and uh, uh, it turned out to be a correct assi- assessment, that uh, we need to break away from that kind of thinking and get involved together to kind of create a more complex and inclusive conversation. And hence the series. And I, I'm very pleased to see CU Press continuing to, to produce absolutely amazing uh, work in this field. And uh, that's, that's absolutely great to be part of it. I'm very grateful. Yeah, we are very much you know, looking forward to any future projects in this series because I think it's a, I mean, as you said, it became very topical and it's very important that we discuss these issues. But I mean, you mentioned that, you already mentioned that there's quite a, you know, a wide geographic spread as well to the series. You mentioned Japan, Italy, and obviously in Central and Eastern Europe. And Greece, we also included Southeastern Europe in this way. Great, we have a book on on Greece, uh, which I think I always believe that ultimately you, you could you could always better translate the regional and the national if it's through the lens of a global perspective. So we obviously wanted to really show the richness of uh, local uh, regional historiographic work, but ultimately this has to be done at the interstices of all the global debates and. So whether it is about Greece or it is about Romania or it's about Hungary or, you know, Italy, ultimately there is something that brings it together. And I think that's, that's an amazing way of doing scholarly work because uh, it exposes you to new approaches, but also it allows you to be more creative and experimental and provocative. Yeah. Could you, could you give us maybe a few highlights from the series? I think they should go to all the books. Uh, I, I love all of, all of them dearly. Uh, I, 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 I greatly learned from the authors. Each book was an experience in itself. Uh, with some of the topics, of course, I had more familiarity than with others, but ultimately all of them uniquely were fantastically rich in terms of uh, material and the way it was presented. And I learned from it. So I, I, I can only, um, we have now, and we'll be, we're just approaching now 15 books in the series. So there aren't too many, I suppose. So if you want to spend a good summer reading 15 books, I'll recommend this to Together, I think they really stand out the test of time. You could look at the series and it looks not only beautifully presented aesthetically, I think the design works very well and, and the way they are uh, each sort of, you know, integrated, but also conceptually, I think that they stand the, the test of time. If I go back to the first book that it was published on Bulgarian um, demography, 
I think that book remains a classic. If I go to, back to the book we did on uh, sort of hygiene and health in southeastern Europe, I did with my colleagues Christian Promitzer and Sebastian Trubert, I think those chapters are still important. The people refer to them. If I go to individual authors, uh, we mentioned the book on Italy. I think that book on Italian eugenics is a classic now in the field by Francesco Cassata. The same with the book by Greg Sullivan on Japanese history, Japanese history of eugenics. If I look at sort of uh, not just eugenics, but broadly history of medicine, the book we translated into English and we published by Berbulescu, it's a classic. It's the, the best book published by a Romanian scholar on the history of medicine. If I look at the fields of public health, we have a number of books on public health and uh, child care. Again, with the focus on the Central Germany, Central Europe and Southeastern Europe. If I look at Fabio's book on, on Muslim women in Vojvodina, again, a classic. So I think the advantage we have, and this is why I'm so grateful to the press, is that I, uh, we always we always given the freedom to really go as deep and wide as, as we can, because ultimately it is the scholarly product that guides us. So my relationship with the press was always based on the fact that, you know, we might not, you know, attract maybe uh, too many submissions, but everything that we attract is of top quality and it's going to open the field wide. And uh, this is clearly the case with the book we're going to discuss in a second, you know. Uh, so I'm very happy to see that that tradition continues. We remain embedded in the, the, the intention to promote East Central Europe and, of course, to promote the area to make it no better uh, to a global audience. But at the same time, we're very keen to attract the focus onto the region from, from outside and to tell them, actually, you know, there's this amazing uh, scholarship that's being produced. There, there are some sort of, you know, traditions that are marginalized and neglected and ignored, and actually they're equally important. So now with the global debate on everything from, you know, racism to eugenics and kind of global south, the, it's the white supremacy and stuff, the decolonization, diversifying the curriculum. I think East Central Europe has something great to offer, and we could learn knowing more about that region. So, I think all of these books uh, suggest that, Andrea. I think we are we were there before the debate began, and we are we are there when the the debate continues, and hopefully we'll be there to to contribute to the, the ongoing debates in the future. If uh, anyone is interested in submitting a proposal, who they, who should they contact? Some people would contact me directly and then I will just immediately suggest uh, they should contact the press, some of the editors uh, at the CU Press, and fill in the form. So it happens, either it goes through the press and then I speak with one of the editors and they suggest, well, we have this submission, what do you, what do you reckon? Would it fit uh, in the series? Or I suggest uh, some authors to, to submit. So in the pipeline now, there are two books, and I hope they will be submitted to our series, will be accepted, we'll see. But one is about the history of British eugenics until today. So finally, you're going to have a book on British eugenics until sort of 2000. And the other one is on American eugenics after 1950. So the whole debate about genetics and, and eugenics in America and bioethics. So if we, if we able to capture these two books in our series, then we truly become a very sort of regional book series, which has very big global ambitions. The book we are talking about today, The Parents of Race Thinking, there is quite a big American element that we will talk about. Let's switch from the series to the latest book in it. Mark, before we kind of dig into the book, could you just say a few words about what made you interested in the history of Czechoslovakia and particularly in this research topic? Sure. Uh, first, I want to say how honored and grateful I feel to be part of such a great series. So thank you very much for that. And I'll also say I, I don't usually like to talk about myself too much as a scholar, but I do think readers might find it relevant to the book. 
My uh, maternal grandparents were actually Czech immigrants to the United States. So whenever we had Christmas, I had a babichka that made kinedliki and all the dumplings and all the old people, my aunts and uncles all spoke Czech. Now, they didn't teach my parents any Czech or me. So I didn't grow up speaking it. I grew up hearing it. But I always wanted to, what I thought in my mind was reconnect with my roots. You probably heard this story from Americans before. I think as a youngster, I really thought I had some kind of Czech blood in me. After living in the Czech Republic for a fairly short time, I concluded that I absolutely do not. And there is no such thing anyway. Being Czech is about learning a culture. It's not about any kind of biological inherited identity. My culture was American. That's how I grew up. Now I have lived in the Czech Republic for 22 years, and I can say I am far more Czech than I was when I was in my 20s when I came to the Czech Republic. But that's because I've learned a lot about the culture, um, not because I have any kind of inherent identity. So I think that background might have something to do with the book I produced. Um, and your question made me think about that. So I thought I'd go ahead and share it. Many thanks for that introduction, Mark, and also for giving a bit of a context into how you found your research area. The subtitle of the book is A Portrait of Alas Hirlicka. To our listeners who are not familiar with his figure, could you give a short introduction to Hirlicka, who he was and why he's important? Yeah, it's not a well-known name today, but... Uh, Hrdlicka was a Czech-speaking immigrant to the United States who became really a founding father of physical anthropology, probably just anthropology in general in the United States. He founded the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, a really renowned journal, and he worked at the Smithsonian Institution for over three decades and shaped anthropology there. Anthropologists know who he is. And in the 1920s, 1930s, he was frequently interviewed in important newspapers in the United States for his opinion on all kinds of things. The book is a portrait. It's not an authoritative biography, if any such thing exists. It's my rendering of Hrlicka and who I think he was with some attempt to capture the age in which he lived as well. So that's why I called it a portrait. So now we have the the main figure of the book. And uh, can you tell us a bit about the questions asked about race at the time in history and how this relates to your book? Okay, so when you say questions about race, the thing that I think is really interesting about my research and what comes out in the book is the questions people asked him. And what it reveals to me is just the incredible uncertainty about racial categories that people had in their minds, which is interesting to me because people talk about race like it's this concrete, empirical, clear, sciencey, biological thing. And yet nobody's really sure who fits into what race. So all kinds of people, Hrlitzka papers are huge, by the way. So if you look at his correspondence, all kinds of people wrote to him, public officials, journalists, doctors, lawyers, all kinds of people wrote to him asking these really interesting questions like, are the Finns white people? Are Armenians white people? Are Spanish white people? Or America, of course, is a country where there's segregation by law. So how can I tell if I see a person that looks white 
do they have some black blood? Is there a way to tell? Is there a, people would ask him all the time, is there a blood test? And another thing that I think is interesting about that is that they, it's interesting that they asked him. Uh, people assumed that this was a scientific question that a scientist like an anthropologist could somehow answer definitively. And he did give people answers, but read the book. My feeling is that his so-called racial diagnosis, as one anthropologist once called it, is probably something more like astrology than any kind of scientific method. But these questions that people have about race really stood out to me. And so that's something I talk a lot about in the book. I mean, for our listeners who have not read the book yet, what would you say, what were your aims in writing it? And uh, what would be the key takeaways? I want the book to make everybody very uncomfortable with Hrlicka. Uh, as a historian, I like, obviously, I like bashing categories. And I like individuals that don't fit nicely into our categories. And I like individuals that make us uncomfortable. And I like to talk about those kind of people. So Hrlicka holds these views that we want to we wanna label him a racist. And by the way, I If you ask me, I do think he was a racist, but somehow that putting him in that category makes us a little too comfortable because that means to us in our kind of dialogue today, that means someone who's stupid, ignorant, unscientific, fraudulent. And as a historian, my job is to recreate the context in which he lived. And I don't think he, he was a scientific authority. He's the kind, and he, He merited that that to a large extent. He did have real scientific accomplishments. In other words, today he's, you'd think of, he's the kind of person you'd trust. He's the kind of person you'd go to to try to get definitive answers. And I think that's what makes us so uncomfortable. He's not, his views, his views on race are contemptible, but he wasn't a stupid backwards person. And if you asked him how he saw himself, he would say he's a champion of scientific progress and Darwinism over religious superstition, as he would have seen it. So I hope people will be very uncomfortable with Alash Rilitschka. I mean, when I was reading your book, what really struck me as someone who has researched and read quite a lot on Czechoslovak propaganda abroad during the First World War, that, at least to me, you were putting it into a kind of different perspective as well when you were talking about, you know, his support for the creation of an independent Czech and Slovak state. So, you know, we read a lot about Masaryk, uh, T.G. Masaryk, the first president of Czechoslovakia, Edward Benesch, Milan Stefanik, and how they used basically the power of propaganda to lobby politicians in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and France. And you also show in the book how Herlitschka was thinking about these issues about delegitimizing Austria-Hungary, creating a Czech and Slovak state, and uh, but he was kind of talking about this from this, what you call the race-thinking perspective. So could you elaborate on these questions a bit, how he thought about these? So you asked a lot there of good questions. Propaganda is a big theme in the book. There's at least a whole chapter on it. It's something I'm very interested in. People get a little offended when you say, you know, check propaganda during World War One. But I would just say, read the memoirs of Edward Benesch or Tomasz Masaryk. They bragged about their propaganda all the time in the 1920s. And they used that word specifically. But as to um, the racial thinking propaganda, if you if you think about it, 
let's take the other side for a minute. Let's say you wanted to defend Austria-Hungary, which I know old Austria-Hungary is really complicated, but you would think, well, it has hundreds of years of tradition. It has diplomatic relations with all the other states. It has fairly clear borders, a kind of constitutional system that's developing that some scholars have compared to Britain, for example. And so if you were trying to argue for its legitimacy, you'd probably go that route. Now, if you wanted to delegitimize it and you wanted to make the argument, well, why should we tear down this legitimate, long-lasting, recognized edifice, carve it up, and put together the old Czech kingdom and steal Slovakia from Hungary and put them together in a state, how would you justify that? It's unprecedented. There's no, it's difficult to legitimate that. So Hrdlicka, as a scientist, tries to make an argument. I would call it an argument from nature. Now, I would put nature in quotes because I think you can have a big debate about what nature is and why it should teach us moral lessons and all of that. But you could argue that Austria-Hungary is illegitimate and phony and artificial because it's a it's a state that lumps together all these biological communities together that don't belong together and forces them, the prison of nations, as they started to say toward the end years. And you could argue, look, Czechs and Slovaks have some, they share some kind of primal, natural, biological identity, and that's why they should be together. And I think that's the argument that Hrdlicka made. And as I read people like Benish and Masaryk, I don't want to say they're the same. Hrdlicka is a scientist and people like Masaryk is much more oriented toward literature and things like that. But I do think they made a similar argument. They wanted a natural... a political organization that they considered founded on nature instead of this artificial political organization called Austria-Hungary. And I should add one thing, and I know this is really heretical, but and I don't mean to make an equivocation, but people should really read Adolf Hitler's evaluation of Austria-Hungary too, because it's really interesting. And I'm again, I'm not saying that I don't want to make an equivocation between the two, but I do think that argument from nature is very prominent in the 1920s and in World War I. And I think he employs that too. He also says Austria, he's also a former Austrian. Austria is this artificial edifice that forces biological communities to live together that don't belong together. So I would recommend reading all of those together. And Hrdlicka, of course, emphasizes the, he's a physical anthropologist. So he emphasizes the physical So what happens after the establishment of Czechoslovakia in in the interwar years? Like When I was reading a book, it seemed to me that there is a tension between what Hrdlicka is advocating for and what Masaryk and Banesh wanted. In the Masaryk and Banesh propaganda, they are emphasizing the peace-loving nature of the Czechs and the Slovak, whereas Hrdlicka is advocating for a more direct action approach. So what was his views once Czechoslovakia was established? There definitely was a lot of tension between Hrdlicka and the Czechoslovak Republic. I think that's almost inevitable. They all have this idea that they're magically connected by blood. And then they have to live in the real world and create a state. And they disagree about all kinds of things in real life because that's how the real world is. And that idea of blood is just kind of a mystical, superstitious belief. They don't. So that's part of it. But the other thing, you know, yeah, the the peaceful Slavs. Hrdlicka also spread that idea. 
So I want to make that clear. He did have that stereotype of Slavs, but he was a little different. You know, he really, he read Benesh's memoirs in the 1920s, and he really criticized Benesh because, and, and Masaryk to some extent, although he liked Masaryk, he was, he was careful not to criticize him too much, but, and he kind of criticized Benesh because Benesh brags always about their diplomatic virtuosity and Hrdlicka sees it differently. He says, you know, first of all, Hrdlicka kind of has a Darwinist view. History is about the struggle of nations and the survival of the fittest. So he's got that angle. And then he writes letters to Czechoslovak soldiers and tells them, fight to the death, punish the Germans, don't let them capture you. It's pretty bellicose. And then he points out, you know, you might label him kind of a realist in a way. He points out, he says, look, everybody knows that if the war had ended in 1917, Czechoslovakia would never get its independence. And the reason is twofold. The United States joined and tipped the balance. And the other one is the Bolshevik Revolution, which triggered a chain of events, which led to the Czechoslovak Legion in Russia at the time to basically take over all of Siberia. It's really an incredible story, not my specialty, but they basically controlled all of Siberia. So right at the end of the war, they're in this position where the British and the French, for the first time, really start to listen to them. Why? Well, because they have a they have an army in a strategic position that the Allied powers they they're seriously considering interfering in Russia in the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and so that's the Hrdlicka's point. a point that Hrdlicka is making. I disagree with most of what Hrdlicka says, and I'm not quite ready to pronounce him right on this. But I do think he has a good point. And um, the other thing, too, you know, Czechoslovakia, people always forget this. It was born out of the world's most deadliest war up to that point. And you can read Benesh and Masaryk in their memoirs, and they're all, they remember being terrified. The Austrians are suing for peace over and over again. And the last thing they want is the war to end. Because if the war ends, then they won't get to crush Austria-Hungary and get independence. So I could go on and on about that, but I think it's at least worth considering the role that warfare and violence played in the establishment of Czechoslovakia. Although I do think it's a complicated story as well. So that's the main difference that I think they had about the historiography of World War One. Yeah, you mentioned um, Herlichko telling the Czechs to go on fighting the Germans. And in the book, you also make it quite clear that he thought that the Germans and the Slavs were mortal enemies and um, they needed to fight each other. However, this kind of eugenic thinking is, of course, also very prevalent to Nazi German ideology. So I mean, that also rested on the eugenic race thinking. So how did Herlitschka view Nazi German ideology on race compared to his own? Uh, yeah, of course, this is a great question. And this is one of those things that where Hodlitschka doesn't fit into the right categories. So we can all breathe a sigh of relief. He absolutely hated the Nazis and he was not, he rejected their anti-Semitism. He criticized it. I can show you that clearly in, in the sources. But you have to think about why. Uh, like on another level, I argue that on, on a more fundamental intellectual level, he he shared a lot of their style of thinking. And yes, that's a good way to say it. Eugenic race thinking, I think, is a great way to say it. That idea that the Slavs and the Germans are locked in this millennial racial struggle, that's part of it, for sure. 
The other thing, too, is I think in our post-war discussion, I think it's changing, but for, for a long time, it was kind of binary where the Nazis are bad and everybody else must be on the good side. But Hrlitschka's, the, the, the Nazis have this very, very constricted view of white racial purity, and it's just Nordic people. And that's far too constricting for Hrdlicka. Of course, Hrdlicka is a Czech and he considers himself a Slav. And so he's not inferior. He's just as good as the Nordics. And so Hrdlicka believes, well, the Nordic people are whites, but so are the Slavs. So are the Jews, for that matter. Probably the Armenians and the Georgians. They're probably all white. But does he go on to make an argument for racial equality? Absolutely not. There's a big white race. And it's a lot more than just the Nazis. It's not Nazi-style racism. There's a big white race, and it is superior to what he calls the yellow browns and the blacks. And they shouldn't even mix, especially with blacks. So that's where, and also I should throw in here, Hrlitschka, as we've kind of been skirting around this, in his own way, he also, well, I shouldn't even say that. He supported eugenics, and he had a eugenic view of the world. In fact, he actually called the Nazi-style racism pseudoscience which is kind of ironic in a way. We would think of some of the things he said as pseudoscience, but he uses that he uses that term himself. And another thing I would finally say about that, I think a lot more research needs to be done, but I think far more people shared that worldview than most people realize. Of course, it didn't culminate in every case the way it did in Nazi Germany, where a state with that ideology took over the government and used all its power of the state to, to enact that worldview. But that doesn't mean that the worldview wasn't out there in other societies as well. So far, we've been focusing on what he's been saying about Czechoslovakia, but he was raised at the Smithsonian and he was involved in quite a few other issues as well from um, that, that were affecting the U.S. from segregation laws in the South to defrauding Native Americans of their land and their rights. So how did he become such a sought-after expert in racial matters? Well, maybe I'll approach that question a little differently. Most So first of all, Hrdlicka is much more important in the United States probably than he is in Czechoslovakia, although he played some role in Czechoslovakia as well. And so most of the, there's, there's not any books until mine and all of the literature otherwise is written from an American perspective. There's maybe two counterexamples from the 1950s. And so they tend to focus on Hrdlicka's role in the United States. In fact, that's one thing that I discovered is that there's a huge amount of writing in the archives in Czech that nobody had really ever read. And when I started to read that, I saw a whole different kind of Lichka. But I would add a second thing to that too. I think in general, and I think this has to do with some of the things Marius was saying earlier, I think in general, the United States, how should I put it? So much of the discussion about, scholarly discussion about race and, and popular discussion about race centers on the United States. And I understand why there's a big story there. But I do think there's definitely race issues in Europe. And I, I think that that global perspective is, is really important. So I usually people start talking about race and also Hrdlicka from the American context. I flip that upside down and say, wait a minute, this guy really believes he's Czech. It's really important to him. Maybe that's where we should start. Maybe that's the place to start with his race thinking. And then I, I felt like some other historian may come along and challenge me, but I felt like everything kind of fit into place after that. 
you look at it as concentric circles and he's Czech. And then his closest brothers are the Slovaks. And then they have a bigger group called the Slavs. And then they bump into the Germans who are their enemies. But the Slavs and the Germans are all white people. So you get, let's say, out to the biggest circle and uh, they're all white people. And then you have three main categories, the, white, the whites, the yellow, browns, and the blacks. And the, the whites are the superior race. The black people are the furthest, the black race is the furthest from the whites. And consequently, further from Alish Hrdlicka, too, the furthest from Alish Hrdlicka, because he's white and Czech. And so for me, I felt like the whole, the whole picture kind of fit together once I started with that center. And it's not a psycho history, but psychologically, it kind of makes sense. Just like I started this discussion talking about myself and how that influence, influences my book, we can imagine that Hrdlicka may have started with himself and worked outward from there. You just mentioned a bit about how he was thinking about race, but did he have like an actual definition? Like, What was his perspective on it? Did he have a, a set in stone definition for himself that he was working with? So I have a lot to say about this. I better be careful. Um, I, uh, first of all, just to answer the question most directly, I don't, I don't think he did. And in a certain way, he was kind of confused about race. Maybe we have to go, go back a little bit. I think a lot of scholarship starts with a definition of race. Certainly here, social construction, race is a social construction. That's kind of a starting point. I don't really use that term, but if you read my book, it absolutely is a social construction argument for sure. But I approached everything differently. Uh, first, the period and then the person. I thought, well, instead of having an a priori definition, let's do this inductively. Let's just read a bunch of primary sources, make a list of all the different ways people use the term race and what it means to them and see what we come up with. And I think anybody that does that will find there's a lot of confusion about what race is, and it's used in lots of different and contradictory ways. People talk about the Irish race all the time, the Slavic race. Hrdlicki even said the Czechoslovakian race at one point. Now, I applied the same methodology to Hrdlicki. I didn't expect him to be... to. to just go through the sources and see all the different ways that he uses the word race. And yeah, it's it's often contradictory. It's not clear. There's no single definition. I'm going to tell you in a minute, I do think there's certain ways to, instead of a definition, I think it's possible to describe his ideas about race, but there's no single definition. And another point to make too, and I think any historian will see this right away, it's not just about the word race. Um, you know, what do the Germans mean when they say folk? What are they talking about? Or, or when Hrdlicka says breed or stock, there's all kinds of other words too. And I, of course, a big part of my book, what do people mean when they talk about nation? I think it can have various meanings, but sometimes I think it definitely shades into race. And so it's not just about finding the single definition of what he meant by race. Now, having said all of that, after my inductive study, I came up with three ideas about what I think Hrdlicka meant by race. First of all, his, I think his, it has a lot to do with his Czech identity. So it's not something intellectual. It's just part of who he is. And I already described, I think that's the center. Second thing, he was a physical anthropologist. I think for Hrdlicka, race is physical and you can measure it. It's not language. He, he says, you know, the Slavs, they all speak similar languages, but that's not really the point. They have some kind of biological, physical similarity. He, he can never really name it, which is kind of interesting, but it's there. There's some kind of physical, 
biological identity that unites them. It's not just language. And then a third thing I argue, and I think that this is the most difficult argument, I think he viewed race as a kind of modern science-based moral system. And I think it blends really well into eugenics there, by the way. And it's a kind of new modern moral system that could replace older superstition like Christianity, for example. So it kind of becomes a belief system, race thinking. And I think part of the reason I wrote the book is I think it was more pervasive than most people realize. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for this fascinating discussion on your book, The Perils of Race Thinking. For our listeners who would like to read the book, all the details about how to purchase it are in the show notes for this episode. To conclude today's episode, could you just say both of you a few words about you know, what you are working on now, what we can be looking forward to? Yes, well, I hope you wouldn't be surprised, but it, it connects to what Mark was saying about the whole Czech debate about race. I'm trying to finish now a book on race and national character in Hungary, in modern Hungary from the 1870s all the way to 1950s. It's both a kind of a personal journey for me, going back to my great parents and great grandparents, but also trying to understand exactly what Mark was saying, you know, why these people always need something biological ultimately to define themselves. So this is my, this is my, my book I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, I would like to explore on a more popular level some of the same ideas. I'm really interested in Czech immigrants in the United States, and I find myself increasingly drawn increasingly drawn to World War One. I. I feel like World War One is a really important moment in the race story. So we'll see. I got I have a couple ideas, but that's one I'm thinking of, especially studying Czech immigrants in the United States around the time of World War One and trying to explore their worldview and see how much it's like Alash Akhlitschka's. I mean, I'm, I know that's a very unfair question to someone who just published a book, just to ask them about what they are working <laughs> on now. But yeah, I'm a little tired right now. But <laughs> thank you very much again for coming on the podcast. And all the details to the series, to the book are in the show notes. And do not forget to subscribe to the CEU Press podcast series so you do not miss any of our new episodes. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.